about cognitive engagement. And by training, I mean that most of us approach poverty, as we're here, with uh, antiquated and ineffective uh, paradigms. And so the class over the next 90 minutes will be to uh, assist us in rethinking service to the poor and the needy. This is not intended to be an end-all, like, wow, I'm a much better Christian, more effective person overall at the end of this. But it is intended to be a directional move towards your processing and your uh, activities uh, that will be sustainable and really effective. We all want to do effective service, but sometimes with uh, the best of intentions, we do more harm than good. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. As I said before, uh, it's a 90-minute class, and we are going to go into lunch. So I would ask you to uh, set your internal body clocks. It'll be well worth it. But if you have to take off at noon, feel free to go. But uh, we will be going. I'm going to give you an advance warning. This is a little longer flight than the normal class that, uh, that we'll have, all right? So uh, there's some handouts. You will definitely want to take notes. And the, the, everything that's on the screen is in your hands. So you don't need to rewrite what's on the screen, but follow along in your handouts, adding notes and things like that. That will be helpful. Because of the distance of the class, or distance, size, the length of the class, we're going to be, uh, there will be some interactive time, but we're going to have to be more disciplined with questions. So we'll have much more time. If you have a question that's going to take a longer amount of breath to figure out, then, or to answer, we want to give full respect and time for that after the class. But if you have just a short, what did that say, or where can I find that, that would be very appropriate. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, without further ado, Nadine Temple. Would, would you like to preference? Oh, yeah. Thanks. Right here. <laughs> That's a good idea. So, uh, you see how good she is? Let's, uh, let's do credit. Father, we are very grateful be able just to lift our voices to the creator of the universe, of all of us, and to know that you're intimate. Thank you for your promise, and I call it to mind now, where two or more gathered, you're in this very space. So we're grateful for your presence, for your intimacy with us, for your caring and love for us. And Father, that includes every single person on the planet. You have brought us to this place at this time to learn something more about your heart and how to effectively serve. So I ask you to open our minds, open our hearts, open our intentions to truly your will. Let us bend to you as we, uh, over the next 90 minutes or so, learn how to be more effective in what it is we do. Love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, please come in and come into the front. There's plenty of space. Can you, is this microphone working? No? Oh, okay. Oh, I know, I know. Oh, did you... Hello, hello. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Well, welcome. Sit down. So, uh, I know it's been a long morning. It was a late evening. So, we're going to try and keep this a little lively, okay? Uh, it is 90 minutes, but as was explained last night, it's a no guilt conference. So, if you need to go, he hallelujah, okay? So, um, <laughs> so, this is a workshop, and it's based on a book written by Steve Corbett and Brian Finker about an. Please forgive my accent, I'm French, okay? Um, that <laughs> it's a book that was written about, um, you know, making sure that as we serve people in our communities and abroad, that we do so respectfully, in a sustainable manner, and in a humble way. 
uh, which uh, so we'll get into some really meaty stuff today. There's a couple of books that have been written in the last couple of years, like Toxic Charity. Uh, a lot of stuff has been published, posted online. So this is all kind of in the same vein. How can we, as well-intentioned, good-hearted disciples, serve our communities, both in the U.S. and internationally, in a respectful and culturally sensitive way? Do we have any more handouts? Uh, sorry, if we run out of handouts, you may have to share with the person next Raise to you. Raise your hand if you do not have a handout. Okay, yeah. let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 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 nine. About you may have to go over with yeah. someone next to you. Couples can share, and I'm going to go make some more copies, but I'll be back in 10 or 15 minutes. So, share amongst yourselves, but follow along intellectually. You have a clearly gifted group here. So, uh, so if you can share with your uh, spouse or a neighbor, and, and just to follow along, I'll go make some more copies. So this is a workshop, by the way. Some of you have may have attended this workshop before. Have, have any of you attended the workshop before? Okay, only Emily. Okay, so um, it's been taught in the U.S. Uh, around you know, various places. My take on it will be a little different today because I'm not really a U.S. person. Sorry. <laughs> um, I oversee all the volunteer programs for Hope around the world, and so I've traveled a lot, and I've seen a lot of the programs in different countries. And so we'll talk about respectful service, not just here, but you know, in um, what we now call majority world countries. Do you know what that means? What does it mean? It's what used to be called the third world countries, or developing world. Now it's called the majority world because that's where the majority of the world lives. The majority of the world does not live in America. Uh, so we are the minority world here. So first question I have for you. Um, you don't have to answer, just think for yourselves. You can maybe write it down in your handout if you have one. Um, what are a few words that come to your mind when you think about poverty? Who are the poor? Where is poverty? What are some of the things that come to your mind as you think about poverty? Okay. So think for a minute, and then we're going to watch a video. So this workshop has a lot of videos in it. The first video is a little long, so I don't know if we'll watch the whole thing. It's like 15 minutes, but it's actually really... Um, kind of crucial to set the, the tone for what we're going to be talking about today. So keep the words you have in mind right now about poverty, and now we're going to um, watch the video. Here we go. It takes a minute for the video to get going, but it should work if Wade... You may have to click on it. I mean, no. Yeah. I don't know how your computer... Get started here. Yeah, it's coming. I hear it.
wait, come back. <laughs> um, okay, all right. Um, never mind. So what I'll do is I'll just, if someone can turn the lights on, um, I will just run through what the video is about. And to do that, oh, that means I can't even do the, hang on, sorry. Sorry about this. I told Wade, I can't use my computer. Oh, here it is. Hey, it came back. We are all the same. Each of us born with unique gifts, but all share the same inherent value. All of us possessing desires and dreams for what our lives may be. And although our circumstances may vary, we all experience happiness and pain in our lives. When we encounter poverty on our street or across the globe, we are compelled with a desire to reach out and end the suffering. <coughs> However, our well-intended good deeds may be contributing to the long-term harm of the world and ourselves. Perhaps we've forgotten that although we have our differences, we are still fundamentally the same. Until we realize this simple truth, we won't be able to help the poor without hurting them. knows how to do this but I'll just keep talking because I know the, the material so 
Um, never mind. So never mind. what the video is about basically is poverty is not just material poverty. Okay. It's just not not having things. Right. It's so much more than that. So when you think back about the words that you used to describe poverty at the beginning, you know, think about that, you know, were the words that we used at the beginning described mostly in terms of material stuff? And sometimes we think to alleviate poverty, we're going to give people stuff. Mm -hmm. And as Christians, we are so well-intentioned. You know, we want to help. We see somebody who's suffering and we want to do something. We want to give them something. We want to give them money. We want to give them clothes and we want to give them food. And that's all very well-intentioned. But poverty, obviously, is so much deeper than that. Yeah, and right. a lot of where you know poverty stems from is really broken relationships. Yeah, it's a breakdown in relationships. And for me, uh, I'll share a little bit personally here because having traveled around the world, I've seen a lot of what is called abject poverty. It's the really, really intense poverty where people do not even have any food. They don't have shoes. They don't have a roof over their heads. They don't, they don't know where the next meal is going to come from. They're, they can't even feed their children. They sell their children. They kill their children. Um, and I've seen that poverty. And then, you know, I moved to the U.S. for the first time last year. Mm -hmm. I've never lived in the U.S. before. And there is so much poverty here. I am shocked. I am shocked. But the poverty here seems to be also a lot of relational yeah. poverty, a lot of breakdown in relationships. Yes, sorry, Wade. We lost power, we lost oh input, we lost everything. So I'm just like, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so explaining, <laughs> I'm explaining the, the video here. So, and I'm going to read you, uh, it's in your handout on page two. There's a little story here, which I know, I'm sure will sound very familiar to those of you who live here in the US. Desiree's story. Um, Desiree Metcalf is 24 years old. She's the mother of three little girls, ages six, four, and two. They all have different fathers. Metcalf got married two years ago to a man who isn't the father of any of her children, but he re recently left her for someone else. I just feel like I get one piece of good news that makes me think life isn't going to be that bad. And then, here comes 30 things to basically push me right back down in this hole that I feel like I've been trying to dig myself out of for the last probably 15 years, she says. Metcalf did not just become poor. A lot of bad things happened. I think we'll just skip the video, the first yeah. video. Um, a lot of bad things happened to get her there. Like many others who are poor, she doesn't have just one or two problems, but a whole pile of them. She was raised by a single mother who was also poor. Metcalf says they didn't even always get along, and things came to her head when she was 12 years old. My mom and I got into a fight, and she told me that she was going to kill me, she recalls. And I wrapped a belt around my neck and told her I would do it for her. I ended up in a psychiatric hospital, and from there, I went to foster care. That meant moving from home to home to home. Metcalf says she attended 26 different schools. Mm. There are some seats up here in front. Yeah. Seems I just get my bag unpacked, and it was time to move again, she says. 
Metcalf, who has dark blonde hair, pulled back from a tired face, admits she's been responsible for some of her own problems. She says she used to be an alcoholic and was into self-harm, which means she cut herself to feel the pain. Today, she has tattoos on her arms to cover the scars. Metcalf says she also smoked like a chimney. Like many before her, she carried her poverty into adulthood, doing odd jobs with periods of homelessness and hunger. But more disturbing is that poverty is now starting to take its toll on her children, especially her eldest daughter. Metcalf says she recently tried to run away from home in the middle of the night, and so on. And these are stories that probably sound very familiar to you as you live in the minority world, and I know, I'm sure a lot of you here are involved in service in your communities. So poverty is so much more than just material poverty. Yeah. Um, and how did Jesus address broken relationships? Let Come me on. move this forward. So this was what the guy in the video was going to explain, okay? <laughs> how, you know, people in poverty or in, you know, under privileged circumstances have a broken relationship with themselves, with God, with others, and with the rest of creation. Um, and so Desiree, how did Jesus address broken relationships? Let's just have a couple of quick answers here. In those stories, when Jesus, um, you know, healed the demon-possessed man, the woman subject to bleeding, and so on, when, when Jesus interacted with people who needed help, who needed to be served, how did Jesus address them? Is, is there a common thread that, yes? He touched them. He touched them? Compassion. Okay, compassion. Soft? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And he also talked about, you know, their spirituality, their relationship with God. You know, Jesus always mixed everything together. It wasn't, okay, there's, uh, I'm going to save your soul, oh, and I'm going to help you physically. It, with, for Jesus, everything was one. Everything was together. And Jesus always addressed the relationships. So, um, sorry about the first video not working out, but in a way, it will save us time. And you understand the point, right? This is a pretty easy first point. Um, the second point, on the other hand, that's where we start talking about us. So this will be interesting. Now let's see if I can get this to work. No? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. How does this slide work? I don't know. Wade, he's not here. He's supposed to be doing this for me. I don't know his computer. Um, does anybody know how to do this? Sorry. I'm French. Oh. Um. <laughs> That's the next slide, though. Um, oh, I can explain the video. I watched it. That will save us time, too. Then we can have more time for discussion. Okay. So, yeah? Shall we do that? Okay, so unit number two. How does this relate to us? Um, so let me read you a little story first. Maybe that will, that will illustrate. So in your handout, the Christmas story. Christmas Eve of 81, I celebrated the season as a newcomer to this urban neighborhood, sipping coffee with one of my new neighbors. Bare floors were swept clean and clutter was picked up. The smell of pine salt hung in the air. Front windows reflected the light from two plastic candles. The children, unseen with anticipation, paced from window to window, waiting for Santa's helpers to arrive. 
When the knock finally came, their mom greeted the visitors, a well-dressed family with young children. A nervous smile concealed her embarrassment as she graciously accepted armfuls of neatly wrapped gifts. In the commotion, no one noticed that the father had quietly slipped out of the room. Not until the guests were gone did the little ones ask where their father was. No one questioned the mother's response that he had gone to the store. But after organizing these kinds of Christmas events for years, I was witnessing a side I had never noticed before. How a father is emasculated in his own home in front of his wife and children for not being able to provide presents for his family. How her wife is forced to shield her children from their father's embarrassment. How children get the message that the good stuff comes from rich people out there and it's free. Christmas Eve in that living room, I became painfully aware that not all charity is good charity. Wow. So that's when now we have to talk about us. Respectful service. You know, again, intentions are very good, but as we serve in our communities, sometimes even with good intentions, we can do more harm than good. So let's have a little discussion about that. What are your thoughts on that? How do we come into the picture? Yes. I think not understanding the culture. Uh huh. Right, exactly. We can actually, even with good intentions, we can cause more damage than actually do good. Yes? I believe that it's better to ask how can I help in a better way than just assume that I will provide the gift. Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. If we continue to perpetrate the cycle of the power dynamic that's already there, we kind of make it bigger mm -hmm. and we continue to pull in from the culture in general, like um, other things that are just damaging to that family, we keep that going. Right, right, okay, all right, yes, Mary B. Um, I think sometimes, as I was looking at that, I thought, sometimes when I want to do things to help, I want to do things in a way that will make me feel good. Um, and that I can say to my children, let's go along and you'll see, we'll help. But perhaps that's the point of service is not for me to feel good, right. but for the people to be helped in a way that really does help them. Right. And as I organize these volunteer trips around the world, you know, sometimes people say, well, you always, we always talk about the fact that we're going to be changed by doing those trips. Isn't the point that we need to help people? I mean, we need to change the world, right? I mean, we're going to go and going to help people. Why do you keep talking about you're going to be changed? So why do you think, um, you know, I talk about that, you're going to be changed? Yes? Well, I, I mean, the big thing is, is that everyone wants to go out and help people, but what they forget is, is that then Jesus was an example of it, is that when he helped people, he actually dealt with them on a lower level than people around him benefit. And that's one of the things that I've been pushing in our whole chapter is yes. we, we, we do a, a Involved in getting involved with the person, I think, is 
they benefit when we do that and recycle for years with the readers, but when, when the whole people actually get really involved with who we're helping, there's a better connection, there's a bigger connection, and that makes a difference. I mean, it really, you know, people get really, really happy and mm -hmm. they, they get from giving. Right. Just giving. Okay, know. okay. Yes, Mark. Yeah. My husband, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Great job. I like you better than the video. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that uh, I learned in, in working with people is just to find out what do you need is, is a question, you know, because so often people have very good understanding of what they need. I'll give a couple of examples. Number one, when we started building homes for leprosy patients in the city of Delhi, the city had a particular design of sloped roofs, but the patients were extremely adamant they wanted flat roofs. And there was a reason for that. Their plan was to make money and build multi-story houses. And uh, 30 years later, after we built these 800 houses, there, there's almost no single-story unit there. They're all multi-story. But the government insisted, and many others as well, that the roofs be sloping and kind of good-looking instead of these ugly flat roofs that we provided. But those flat roofs were what they wanted. Um, second example, I was working with a, a government program to uh, provide medical care to a slum that didn't have medical care. And we went into the slum and asked, what do you want? And they said, jobs. <laughs> and uh, I had to work very hard with the entity that was providing the program to convince them that we needed to do vocational training in order to get buy-in for whatever medical initiatives they were giving us money for. And the community was more excited about the training for young people to get jobs than they were about the medical program. Okay, one more and then we'll move on. Yes? Um, in business, I, uh, this, all this whole discussion reminds me of a, of a saying that I learned, don't confuse activity with results. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so understanding what the needs are is key before we begin the Right. And I think as Christians, as disciples, again, you know, we, we see someone suffering and we want to fix it, right? But sometimes that's not the way we think it needs to be fixed. And where we have to be very careful, I think, and I know I have to watch that definitely in my own heart, is um, the pride, the arrogance to think that somehow we're better. We're here, oh, I'm here to help you. You know, if we serve in a humble way, we get helped just as much, if not more, than the people we serve. And again and again, I see that, you know, when, when we go on these trips to, uh, to volunteer and we get involved in a community and we, we are with the people, we're not doing things for the people, you know, we try and do things with the community. Um, you know, after a couple of days of serving together, um, hearts are opened. And people start confessing their sins. And I start hearing, oh, these, these people are so amazing. And I'm learning so much. And they're so joyful. And they're so this. And they're so resilient. And then the respect towards the community really comes out. And, you know, maybe people start talking about personal trauma they've never talked about. Because at the end of the day, and this is the point of this video that you didn't see, um, that um, we are all poor. Yeah. We're all hurt, we're all broken. And when we go into a community where we see material poverty, thinking that we're gonna fix it, at the end of the day, probably 
whether it was going to get fixed. And I think it's really important as we serve with all of our good intentions to, to think about the fact that we have to do so in a very, very, very humble way. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we can do more uh, harm than good. Okay, until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with low-income people is likely to do more harm than good. And as Mary Bay was, was sharing earlier, you know, what is our motivation as we serve? What is my motivation? You know, I always wanted to go and live in a majority world country. From the time I was a child, I wanted to go and be Mother Teresa. And I wanted to go and be Florence Nightingale. And I wanted to go and help people. And I want to make a difference. And, but what, what's the motivation behind all of that? You know, am I going to serve and learn? Or am I going because I think I know better? Right. So um, let's go to, let's stop, skip this. Okay, and this is an interesting diagram. You know, the material definition of poverty plus the God complex of the materially non-poor, that's us, feelings added to feelings of inferiority in the materially poor can lead to more harm to both materially poor and non-poor. We can make people feel worse about themselves and we can get more proud in the process, which is just a wonderful combination. <laughs> so this is all nicely moving example. Here we go. Okay, let's skip this. Okay, so what do we have to do? This is not the conclusion of the whole class. This is the conclusion of the unit. <laughs> so deny our... But if we ended here, that might be a good thing, actually. Deny our natural or cultural God complex. Embrace our mutual brokenness, and so on. Okay. Understanding why good intentions are not enough. Can you yes. try and make it work? <laughs> You're a magician. There we go. We needed you. We needed you, Wade. People should work, so when we teach them to work, that's when they will own the work and they will be able to continue with their livelihood. When you give free things, like if you found a woman and a man like this one talking, yeah, and then you give them something, they say, oh, that white man has seen that we are so poor, that's why he's giving us. They'll not own that money, they'll misuse that money, they'll, they'll think like they want to sit and expect someone to come and give them things for free and it lowers the dignity of the people because they are able to work but when you give them free things it's like you are lowering their dignity and increasing the poverty level and development. So we've got a picture here. You can imagine that this is a, a picture of our person. And this could be a person anywhere in the world, quite frankly. That person is at a particular level of poverty or of poverty alleviation. They're, they're at some level that's kind of their baseline. But then the earthquake hits. A crisis happens. 
And that person is being plunged downwards into poverty. Relief is the appropriate intervention. Relief is an attempt to stop the bleeding. But once the bleeding has stopped, you then enter into what's called the rehabilitation phase, trying to restore that person in Haiti to where they were before the earthquake hit. And then finally, development is this last phase. It's walking with that person across time in ways that help them to move beyond where they were before. So relief and rehabilitation and development. Now, as I, as I have that diagram up there, I have one concern, and that's this. It is not the case that most poor people that you are working with are coming out of a crisis. It's not the case that every single poor person is going to go through these phases of relief and rehabilitation development. Most people that you're going to work with, uh, either at home and abroad, are actually not coming out of a crisis, they don't need relief or rehabilitation, they're simply at some level, and they need you to walk with them across time in ways that we would call developmental. So that's actually the situation that most people are in with whom you'll be working. The issue of relief, rehabilitation, and development is really answering the question of causality. What's caused the person the household, the community, to be in the situation that they're in. Not all poverty is created equal, meaning our approach to helping must first be evaluated. For instance, in the case of global hunger, over one billion people worldwide suffer from this chronic state of living. Yet, in a 1980 study presented by The Hunger Project, only 10% of those facing the issue require relief as a response. Helping a family or community facing the hunger crisis may not only avoid the heart of the problem, but may actually inhibit any future development. One of the key issues in well-meaning people who want to help poor people is they often can end up creating a system of paternalism or accurate paternalistically. Paternalism is habitually doing for people and providing for people things that they can do and provide for themselves. Let me come in and kind of do this for you. So our church comes here and we're going to do VBS over there the way it should be done. Or we're going to come build this the way it should be built. And that's detrimental. I think we're missing the understanding that it is a long process. We really like solutions that are prepackaged and relatively simple that have worked somewhere and that we can just plug in. And so the idea that I need to be committed to something for a long time and that it's going to be difficult and that I might get kicked in the stomach and I have to be committed to get back up and keep trying um, is what I, I think takes the wind out of the sails for some people. That's why it's easier to do short, quick bursts of, of good deeds. You know, that it's a lot harder to get people to sign on the dotted line for. We see a problem when we treat symptoms, right? And symptoms counteract other symptoms. And, this drug reacts with this drug, and we constantly are chasing systems and managing symptoms rather than getting to the core issue of the human condition, which is mine as well as yours. The mission of the church is to preach a holistic gospel. It's just that we come from a background where social and spiritual had been separated. So we are going back to preaching a holistic gospel that will deal with the whole person. Amen.
So sometimes that's how we feel. Like, oh no, what have I done? All these years I was I was trying to help people, and yes, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with, you know doing our best to help and to give and so on but again we have to think very carefully and just a quick question here what did you understand about the difference between relief rehabilitation and development and how do those get confused yes relief happens when there's been a major crisis like what's happened in um virginia or not virginia i'm here um in florida yeah. right um and so to just And then rehabilitation and development. Rehab is more of a helping people to get back to um, a new normal, right. whatever that would be. Mm -hmm. um, and then development is where you help them to get further along than what they are from the beginning before everything happened with the crisis and whatnot. Right. Helping them to move further. Right. And what's the hardest part of that? Right. And what do we do a lot of the time? And sometimes we do relief when actually what's needed is development. Right? And as the lady explained so well, and this is so convicting for us as disciples, is, you know, it takes time, it takes commitment, and it gets messy. You know, when, when a disaster happens and you go into a community, like there was a, a big, huge tsunami in South India and in Indonesia in 2004, and hundreds of thousands of people died. You know, what do we do? We go in, and we go in and we, we collect, you know, the dead bodies, and we give people water and food and blankets and tents and clothes, and that's what's needed at the time, and that makes us feel good because we're really helping and and then at that point, most NGOs leave. Why? That's actually when the work really starts. Um, you know, and I'm so grateful for my husband, and at the time he was supervising the work down there in South India. The money that we got for, the, for that disaster, we didn't spend it all in the relief. We only spent a small portion in the relief. And once everybody else had left, well, not everybody, a few other NGOs stayed, but... A lot of the big NGOs disappear after that initial phase. Afterwards, the money was used to build three centers of hope on the coast of Tamil Nadu in South India. And to this day, those centers are still thriving. And some of you may have gone there. You know, we have schools, we have vocational training centers, we have medical clinics, we have microloan programs. And 15 years after the disaster. But in those 15 years, it was tough. <laughs> and, you know, you get insulted, and there are the local people riot, and, you know, they're unhappy because it's not this way, it's not that way, and, you know, the politicians get involved, and there's corruption, and that's the hard work. That's the hard work. And even in our own communities here in this country, you know, you know, because a lot of you do this kind of work, you know, really getting involved in the communities for the long term, that's where the hard work happens. The initial relief or, you know, giving toys for Christmas or, you know, giving sandwiches to the homeless, that's all great. But does that really make a difference? And who does it make a difference for? 
And I'm not saying this to be negative and make all of you all feel like this baby, you know. <laughs> but I do think that as Christians, we have to be humble and re-examine our serve. Can I jump in there? Yes, of course. So this is the challenge as you go home. You probably have a program in your church now that feeds the homes. And you have a singles Bible talk, a married Bible talk, a rotation. And um, now you're aware that that's applying relief to what should be a development problem. You have homeless men and women and families coming to your table and you're giving them something to eat, which is great temporarily. But you're programming, and that's what we're trying to do within the United States and around the world, is create, instead of just that homeless thing, what can develop these folks that are at your table? What sort of uh, educational or mental health or um, other resources can be brought to bear to help that person not be at your table next year, but to be in his or her own home? Right. Um, the, the countering feeling is the guilt when you say, wow, our homeless initiative is doing more harm than good. Oh, no. It's like when we got baptized, we just ran home and said, mom, dad, guess what? You're all lost. And we know how effective that one is, right? This is the same nuance needed when you go home right. to say the good intention of our homeless uh, initiative this Thanksgiving is wonderful. How can we steer it or aim it so that it's more sustainable? Great stuff. So that's the thinking that I want you to be absorbing uh, now as you go home. And I want to share a personal story from last year because, as I said, and please take this with a grain of salt, okay? I'm new to this country. I'm learning, okay? So I came here, and our wonderful church had a Thanksgiving boxes drive. So we all go out, we spend a hundred dollars, we you know, do a box with nice things, food and stuff, and then we are assigned a house where we deliver it. So I was like, Oh, okay. So I did that. I went and I bought, you know, the stuff and then the address I was given was my neighbor next door. <laughs> this is a family I know. Our kids go to school together. That was kind of awkward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I, I, I felt bad and I did not really understand why I felt so bad at the time. But then I thought, you know, this is not equal. Like this is, you know, there's something wrong about the, the relationship here. Um, so I think it's those kinds of things. And then later I thought, you know, I wonder how did they feel? Right. I mean, you know, so I think those kinds of things we have to think about. And again, it's a work in progress. We're all learning. We have good intentions. But, you know, let's really, really examine. And maybe this is maybe a, a time to have a little bit of comments, discussion, questions. Um, okay, maybe somebody else. Yes.
Right, and this next slide it talks about paternalism. It's a strong word because we never think that that's what we do, right? But is that what we do? Is that a form of it? You know, in our in our good intentions, uh, you know, make people feel that they're on a different level than us when actually we may. What does Jesus really think about it? Blessed are the poor. Okay, um, how does that work? You know, and just really examining what we think about. Any other comments? Yes, Mandy. Mandy works for Hope, by the way. She's wonderful. <laughs> so it's not a plan to answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, all of this has impacted me as well when working for Hope, but I just think talking about the fact that I can feel paralyzed then, like, well, maybe I shouldn't do anything. Right. And we're all busy as disciples, and we have a lot that we're doing, and we're leading Bible talks, and we're going to church on midweek, and we have kids, and all this, and so it's a lot easier to do the relief because I can bring some shoes to midweek when we right. have a shoe drive or whatever. But the moving into the development thing is going to take my time, and it's going to take effort, and mm. that just bluntly can feel really overwhelming, even right, right now. But then the thing to do then is I think, and again, that's why we have to be humble, is there are organizations in our own neighborhoods, there are people in the community that are already doing that. So instead of reinventing the wheel, you know, we can actually go and serve with them and partner with them. Uh, because, hey, they're doing it, and so we can go, and I know we do this already, but then we don't have to feel like I have to create a program or I have to, you know, there are programs already, wonderful, wonderful uh, programs going on in all of our communities where we can go. Like when I send these groups abroad, I don't always, you know, we work with whole programs sometimes, but sometimes we partner with other organizations as well, like Habitat and others. So, yes, yes. Right. We made them feel poor by our understanding of materialism. Right. And uh, yeah. they were, people were so happy with where they were at. They were a lot better with family, family skills. And so I think we need to go into any kind of situation not bringing our own preconceived Americanism of how they should be living. It just doesn't fit. Right. In a lot of ways, they were so much better off than what I, you know, came in with. Right. And then when I heard Dinesh talk about Hinduism, 80% in India, 3% or 8% of Christianity, I thought, oh my gosh, we should be bringing in the love of Jesus and forget this other stuff that we're trying to throw at people. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yes? I think one thing that I love about how Jesus approached um, poverty even if it's poverty in a spiritual way, right. is relationally. Yes. So I love that you guys started out with the idea of a broken relationship mm -hmm. because that's what it is. Like mm -hmm. to take the shoes is awesome, but to build a relationship is even more awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So it's it's okay to take the shoes, you know what I mean? But right. it's, it's very key to build the relationship mm -hmm. and show them who Jesus is through us. Mm -hmm. That's the whole goal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know if in the video you got to the point picking up on both of those two points uh, that there was a study done about poverty and people in poverty were asked how you define poverty. Did you get to that? 
So, 80% uh, of the respondents in poverty, when asked around the world, what is poverty, 80% responded, lack of access, lack of dignity, lack of, of uh, support. Americans, or first world, not just Americans, but first world, almost always 100% answer, lack of stuff. Right. Uh, and and so, when, so that's why we apply stuff to poverty. When actually what, the, what most of the world is wanting, I, I can make my own stuff if you give me access, if you give me tools, if you help me get the resources and, and, and the organized resources in my community. And that you experience when you go around the world, they don't say, I want your stuff. They say, I want access, I want education. I don't want to go, I, I love my own, mm -hmm. but I need uh, your assistance, not for you to come in and save me, mm -hmm. to walk with me to create resources. That's the harder work. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And let's not go out, as has been mentioned, I want to say it a couple of times, in some, I know there's this guilt sometimes, like, sure. oh, all I've ever done is try to help, and now I'm actually hurting, and should I do nothing at all? Yeah. Something is always better than nothing. But right. the point of this class is to re-gear our training right. on how can we be more effective and really treat the symptom, so treat the, 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 uh, the cause, the cause for, for change. Yes, great, great point. Yes, Jane? It seems to me maybe that perhaps what we need to do is apply what we do when we share our faith uh -huh. to yes. the same kind of commitment. Exactly. As was very evident right. in some Asia. Exactly. And I think that, that this is a true paradigm shift, not only probably, let's see a lot of stuff a paradigm shift not only for people who are hope people, mm -hmm. but for your staff people, your ministry staff to say yep. the yes. value mm -hmm. is also in that program that we do on a weekly basis and they're putting people with that. It has the same value. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let me speak to that. Yes. 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 Yeah. So I think it, it also goes back to what Wade was saying about access with Jesus. A lot of what he was doing, as far as healing people, allowed them to go into the temple and experience community. I mean, you think of the bleeding woman, you think of the lepers, and you think of the invalids. Like they weren't able to go into the temple. Right. They were ill. That's right. And so, like, sending out the invite. And bringing people in the community. I don't even know if I have any skills I can teach people, but bringing people to a community or bringing people just into the fold and allowing them, and it goes back to the relationships. But so Jesus brought relief, like immediate relief, but it was sustainable because then they were able to rejoin the community. Great. Excellent point. Excellent. Yes, and as we share, you know, it is so obvious how the spiritual. And the material, everything is together. The broken relationships, that's why it all comes back to all the time. And I think too often as disciples in the church, we separate ministry and service when really it's all one and the same thing. And, you know, I mean, we feel very strongly about that at Hope. And Wade and I spend most of our adult life in the full-time ministry, so working for Hope is quite recent for both of us. Yeah. So we approach our work very much from the point of view of, 
you know, what would Jesus do as a, as a minister you know, in this situation? So I totally agree with the, the points you brought up. Yes, anybody else has something burning on their heart before we move on? Okay, Samti. Um, I just had a quick question with what you were saying as far as like um, the importance of how we communicate this, bringing it back to our ministries. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, just like, because it, it is so easy when you kind of have this information to, to go back and, and to have that self-righteous tendency of like, no, we're doing this wrong, let's do it the right way. <laughs> right. So how would yeah. you say like, what's an effective way that we can bring this back um, and kind of have that shift in, in strategy and how to communicate that with leadership and people that generally do have those good intentions? Yeah. Great question. I'd say two things. The first is that um, have this conversation over coffee. And this isn't a 10-minute fellowship. We're doing it all wrong. Call me. Um, but to whoever the powers that, that be, whether chapter director or evangelist or women's ministry leader, sit down and, and invite for coffee or lunch. I want to share some thoughts that I've been having about how we can more sustainably change. And then we engage the conversation. The second is that I would have you and everyone in your church at some time read, maybe it's a great Bible talk series, When Helping Hurts or Toxic Charity. Which flesh out these two ideas wonderfully. So, when helping hurts or toxic charity, Amazon and there's quite another couple, but those are the two best. Do you find that sometimes you want a community that has been given so much that they're resistant to, because it's gone generationally, that they've lived that way? Um, there's two, two parts of your question. I have found that people are resistant when they have been continually fed answers that are not their problem. So, um, hi, I'm here, and we want to serve the homeless in your community. Man, you're the fifth church over the last 10 years, and we don't have a homeless problem. You bring them to us. <laughs> That's the resistance. But if you say, we, uh, we have, a, uh, I have a program for young boys of color to uh, go from, you know, get out of the, the prison pipeline to education, you go, great. Because that is our problem. You're coming. And, and uh, so to assess the community's problem or solution and to partner with them very rarely has resistance. Does that answer your question? Good. Okay, Sorry. great. <laughs> we'll move on to the last video. So we're doing well with time here. Um, and this is more about empowering the communities. How do we help by empowering the communities? So, wait, will this... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Your, your computer doesn't work the same way as mine. Doesn't... No. <laughs> That's, okay. That's why we're a team. Here we go. All right. to believe is that everyone has something to contribute in the life of the community. That no one is so poor that they have nothing to bring to the exchange. We've been created in the image of God. We've been created with potential, with capacities, talents, and a design to maximize those to use every bit of our God-given ability to accomplish useful and productive things in this world. 
whatever erodes that, whatever diminishes that, whatever takes away from that sense of dignity and purpose is against the will of God. Innovation is not the problem. People assuming that they're innovators is the problem. It's our attitude, it's our approach, it's our mindset. Rather than coming in and trying to establish ourselves as innovators in a situation, we go in and we seek, who are the innovators in this situation? Asking people to be the solution to their own problems allowing them to innovate, that's what empowerment really is. That's real change. So that when we leave, we drive out of the dangerous neighborhood, we go to our homes elsewhere. Guess who stays? Guess who becomes a part of their own solution? There was real truth in the fact that God has given everybody inherent dignity and worth and value. And when you set up a situation where you forget that, where you feel like you're just a little bit better than them, or you're more knowledgeable than them, um, or because you're more educated than them, you have more answers than they have, then you are set up to failure. You get the nice, polite nods, but you don't get transformation. You've heard people come back from trips and say, oh, well, people, they have nothing. It's this assumption there's this a deficit of human resources, economic resources, knowledge resources in a person's life, in a family's life, in a community's life. And when you have that perspective, of this needs-based perspective, what tends to happen is you quickly assume, oh, the solutions are going to have to come from the outside. The knowledge is going to come from the outside, the economic resources need to come from the outside. Um, all solutions are not based in the community, but from outside the community, and in you come, that approach is going to intensify people's poverty of being and poverty of purpose even as you're trying to overcome their poverty of condition, you know, their physical realities. Needs-based development focuses on the deficits and shortcomings in the life of a person or a community. Folks, let's remember what's going on here. We've got folks who are struggling with a sense of superiority of God complexes. That's us in the room today. And, and, and we're, we're, we're trying to engage with, with materially poor people who typically are suffering from a marred self-image. Does it seem to you like a good starting point in that dynamic that we're trying to overcome, a good starting point to walk up to a materially poor person and say, what's wrong with you? How can I fix you? How are you broken? What do you need from me? Guys, it's not a good starting point to overcoming this dynamic. It starts off at exactly uh, the foot that we want to avoid. What needs-based development does is it assumes that solutions and resources will come from outside of the individual or community. It says, you're poor, you can't do it. The solution is going to come from outside of you. It, put, it sets them up for expecting something to be brought in to save them, which is exactly what we want to get away from. What needs-based development fails to do is to identify and to mobilize the assets of a person or a community. What's the goal? 
The goal is restoration. The goal is for people to have a sense that they're made in the image of God. He has blessed them with gifts, all kinds of gifts. Physical resources, social resources, spiritual resources. And to get them to start to steward those resources and develop those resources more effectively. That's the goal. So by starting off by saying, I don't know what you got, but I know what I've got over here that I can use to fix you. What do you need? Doesn't start off with where you want to go. It starts off on the wrong foot. And so in needs-based development, we're ignoring the assets that are already there. Amen. Wow. This is so convicting. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this work for a long, long time. But, you know, as I said, you know, it's a work in progress. And we're all learning. And even as I send these groups around the world, every year we're doing things differently. Because every year we're learning new things. Uh, I went to the Philippines. I love the Philippines, by the way. Um, but um, I went and, uh, you know, we went with a big group. And uh, we were spending Christmas with the community. And so we arrived there. And, okay, what are we going to do? So there was a, a typhoon. So the houses are destroyed. Okay, then I guess we're going to rebuild houses. So we talked to the people in the community ahead of time, what do you need? And they, their houses are houses built on stilts made of bamboo. That's what they want, that's how they live. But meanwhile, you know, some of my well-meaning friends were like, but why don't you build real houses made of bricks on the ground? We'll give you the money. but." And we're like, well, no, but that's not what they want. That's not how they live. And so as we were there uh, serving in that community, the families then built the houses and they were telling us how to build the houses. And they, they were leading the process and we were the workers kind of, you know, carrying stuff around. And, you know, but it was very interesting, the mindset of why don't you build real houses yeah. with bricks? Well, it doesn't work in that environment. There's a lot of flooding all the time, so the houses have to be on stilts. Uh, so it's those kinds of things where I think in our mindset, you know, we think, you know, we can think we know better. Actually, the local people really do know better. <laughs> they live there, and, um, and they're very, very, very smart. So that's the kind of uh, things. Any other reactions to that video? I do want to say that yes. for some of you, you missed the announcement that we are going to go another 30 minutes. And so if you're like, oh no, I, don't they know they're wrapping up? We are intentioned to live in the 1230. So if you have a lunch point. But it, if you need to leave, it's fine. Uh, but yes, so we can have more discussion. Any, any reaction to the video? Or any comments? So yes, Summer. Uh, I think this, like watching that video is very humbling for me because I think if I consider myself, like the things that I'm most proud of are things that I worked really hard for um, or like I learned how to do and I had to overcome something and I would hate to feel like something was just given to me that I didn't deserve or that I didn't earn or that people didn't think I could do something and so they just kind of, here, we'll just take care of it for you. But then my mindset with service is totally the opposite and I don't assume that people are the same way that they wouldn't be like as goal-oriented or also strive to like create something that they could be proud of. And so I love the idea of asset, what is it, asset-based asset -based. development because it's like that like we all want to be a part of the plan. Like even thinking about like 
our job as Christians. Like we want to be a part of God's plan. We want to like move the gospel forward. And so for these communities, like they want to move their community forward. They want to move their lives forward. And we can just be a part of that. We aren't the solution, but we can just like kind of touch the ball in their own progress. And if you think about it, you know, if you're a parent, isn't that kind of the same principles? You know, and, and if, even as we share the gospel with people, isn't the most effective way to for people to become Christians, for them to figure out their relationship with God, and we may be there to assist, but really, so it's really all the same principles. Um, yes, Scott. 